Hello, this is Rox and welcome to this month's Trossachs Wild Apothecary interview. This month I'm delighted to be chatting with Melissa Ronaldson about Herbalists Without Borders UK, the work that they do and the situation in refugee camps in Calais and Dunkirk and how you can get involved and help. Trossachs Wild Apothecary are supporting the herbal medicine making campaign with pay it forward workshops and developing some online materials. I also have a new online family foraging wild food, herbal and mindfulness course, Little Alchemist Club. You can find out more and join on my website, www.trossexwildapothecary.com. Please subscribe to the podcast if you'd like to hear more interviews. Hope you enjoy today's interview. I thought the, a good place to start would be if you could just talk about who you are and what you do and how you got into herbalism. <laughs> okay. Okay. So my name is Melissa Ronaldson. Uh, I've been a herbalist for 20 years. I first started studying herbal medicine in my 30s. I'd previously worked in mental health. I was lucky enough to do an adult education course with Christopher Headley and that set me on the path and that was just before the degree started. Uh, so I went and did a degree at Middlesex. Um, I've practiced in London mainly ever since. Um, for the last 10 years I've been practicing from my boat which is called Storm Vogel, the herbal barge, which allows me to be to see people from the river. Mm -hmm. That's nice. And um, so, how did you get involved with going out to Cali? Um, I think, like lots of people, I sat around watching the news in horror and looking and wondering how I could possibly go. I knew that herbalists had something to contribute, especially those of us of us that had worked at festivals and were really quite good at doing first aid and acute herbal medicine. I knew that that wasn't going to be necessarily easy to communicate to people with a conventional medical background. Mm -hmm. um, and then it just so turned out that one of my neighbours was involved in setting up the refugee community kitchen. And I received an email from them about using food as medicine okay what could they put in latte mixes you know how could they use turmeric and that was such a relief because i suddenly thought okay there's my way in yeah uh, i don't have to justify that and then i went out and realized that i actually knew a lot of the community involved in setting that up and i'd known them for years from festivals you know there was somebody running one of the kitchens that i hadn't seen for 20 years but I knew her really well. So it was easy for me to step in to be a herbalist because people already knew a little bit about my background. Okay. So that was really reassuring. So quite quickly, I was working from the kitchens, not doing food, but doing first aid. And then after a few months of going and doing that sometimes, uh, other herbalists went out and worked with the medics uh, on the in the first aid caravans 
and I eventually went out with them and that started my relationship working with the, the, the conventional medics who were doctors and nurses and first aiders. And I... Were they quite receptive? Mixed, really mixed. You know, I, I think I realised quite early that that was where we could be the most effective. I've lost you. Um, and it was a it was a mixed journey, you know. You'd go for two days. Catherine Johnson was a herbalist who went out, who spent three weeks. She'd spend long chunks at a time, and I think she was a fantastic ambassador for herbal medicine. In that she was very clever. She was very good at integrating. And the more time people work with herbalists they often learn to trust them. And I think that she established our role within that team. However, as much as some of the founders were quite open to us, every time you'd get a new influx of medics and there's, you know, there was quite a, a fast turnover, people would come and do a couple of days. Mm -hmm. So you'd have a new qualified doctor who'd come and you might have to start all over again in justifying and explaining well you might have had three fantastic days working with some really good doctors and had fantastic conversations and then you'd be really included and interesting things like the translators who would have been the only consistent people there mm -hmm. so we used to pay translators to work in the caravans and they might be the one that might say oh should we ask the herbalist <laughs> <laughs> funny thing like that happens at Bill Sark and then you'd get so far and then you'd start again because somebody else would come in and go, oh, who are you? Yeah. <laughs> Where's your evidence base? I think we'll do it like this. So that was, you know, that was, that's been consistent, <laughs> frustrating, but part of the work I feel like. I feel like in Calais, in the, the refugee camps, working in first aid, you kind of face two ways, or I found myself facing two ways. One was in service delivery to refugees, and the other way was in explaining herbal medicine. Mm -hmm. And that has had different phases. Um, the camps were shut, the camps were evicted, and then there was another phase of, I worked in the women's centre, which wasn't with medics, and that was much more on a kind of working with the women, doing workshops, just being there for much more intimate and longer conversations, doing beauty days, doing pamper days. Okay. And then the fast first aid team set up again and I ended up being the van where we did mobile service delivery. Okay. And that was really interesting because it would often be me and one other medic, mm -hmm. sometimes a doctor, sometimes a nurse. So you would be forced into those conversations and that was a very productive time, I found. Mm -hmm. Even if people started off a bit concerned of you on day one, five, they had really travelled and seen and, you know, all the medics going there want to do the best they possibly can. Yeah. And you're quite restricted in your uh, tools if you're doing first aid, mm -hmm. where it's not conventional first aid. It's not just about faints and wounds. It's about coughs, colds and flu. Yeah. 
Yeah. And viral yeah. illnesses where they might say, well, I've got some paracetamol. And it's that you know, stage of what do I do? Give a LEMSIP? You're not quite at the stage of taking you to A&E and I haven't really got any tools. And that's where, as a herbalist, you can go, actually, yes, we do. We've got some coffee, we've got some chest rub, we've got all these things. Oh, the, were the, the refugees themselves, did you find they're more open to herbal medicine because of their backgrounds and things? Uh, I think we can't generalise about any particular community. No. And even within a community, there are different generations. So, for example, you might get an old Kurdish bloke who will go, yes, give me some garlic, I eat four cloves a day, that keeps me strong. And you might get a young urban Kurdish woman who, in the same way as that generation here, might go, please, can I have some proper medicine? Have you not got any paracetamol? No, all the, the, the generational and individual differences that you get here are true there. Yeah. And yet, everything's not true. You know, there will also be... I, I, no, it's, you know, I've also had middle-class Iranians who want herbal medicines because they're natural mm -hmm. in the same way that you might get middle-class people here going for complementary medicine as an alternative. Mm -hmm. um, there will be Africans or Sudanese who maybe are more used to using herbs, but every time you make a generalisation, Somebody else. Yeah. 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 But I, but I would say that genuinely, accumulatively, uh, people have learned to trust us. And that is from going back and being there and making friends with key people mm -hmm. who, so there's a word of mouth thing. And if you, and, you know, I think that for refugees, you know, that gap in between an emergency going to hospital and nothing, we occupy yeah. really well. Yeah. And I was thinking today, you know, there are things that it's never too small. We can offer stuff for skin stuff. And that might be the stage before sepsis. You know, it might be a secondary infection. You know, obviously, if it's a second infection, our job is to say, go to hospital, yeah. get antibiotics. And it's really important that that is our job. Mm -hmm. You know, we are not there to promote our, our medicine above yeah. plugging people into the safest possible option for them. But everything before that and everything that is involved in stopping it getting to that stage we have solutions for, mm -hmm. you know, and there are, there are times where I might take something on here or even at a festival because I know that I can make somebody come back the next day and the next day and the next day and I can chase it and watch it. I don't always have that opportunity there. So there is much more one shot and your one shot might be I'm going to advocate or help you plug in to somebody else's provision. Yeah. yeah. Do you see a lot of the same, the same people having said that? Or is, it, is there quite a lot of different people each time you go? 
both things are true. Both things are true. Mm -hmm. uh, some people have been there years. Mm -hmm. um, some people I have seen regularly over a two or three years or four year period. And there's always new people. Mm -hmm. so, and people don't imagine that they're going to be there for very long. Yeah. So even if you know that you've seen somebody for four years, they're still going to go, I can't do that. I might be in, in the UK tonight. So, you know, everyone is there because they are transitory and they are trying to get to the UK. Yeah. And we, we don't really know much anymore. So we don't really know what it's, what it's like, but what's it like there for people living there? It changes, it's just changing all the time. You know, uh, since the camps in 2016, there has, you know, when I first went there, it was, I found it very shocking. I had never seen anything like that in Europe. I couldn't imagine how bad it was. And yet, in retrospect, the dignity, the hospitality, the capacity for autonomy that existed there was entirely preferable to what exists now which are, uh, you know, transitory camps of tents mm -hmm. that are ongoingly evicted all the time. So they might be there for a few weeks and then they might be evicted, they might be there for a night and then they might be evicted. So what it is like now are different communities are in different satellite camps dotted around in, in Calais, they're dotted around industrial areas. And in Dunkirk, there's an obscure beauty spot with some lakes where people are surfing and there's some woods uh, where people were camping. More recently, they've moved into a, a derelict, well, there was a camp, but there was an official camp sponsored by the prefecture for a little while that burnt down in March 2017. So since people are, um, yeah, either dotted around the woods or at the moment, there's a kind of derelict farm buildings where, and people have put their tents up on the concrete within these farm buildings. Yeah. And so they're regularly moved on, are they? Just having to find somewhere else all the time? Yeah. yeah. I mean, Calais is slightly different to Dunkirk because there are different jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. uh, pretty much, yes. Or they, you know, they might go from one road to the next road right you know it's like very you know cat and mouse and just being moved around different sites it seems that since corona you would think at first of all it looked like the police were backing off but in calais it looks like the evictions have been intensified which is more ludicrous you know they're not where did, there's even less anywhere for people to go yeah. Uh, you know, and when I say an eviction, they will come in with pepper spray or CS gas. They will spray in people's tents. They will try to put people on. You know, there doesn't often seem a coherence or a strategy, except sometimes you think this, 
the strategy has been zero tolerance. I don't know what the strategy has been during Corona. Often there's a lot of unjoined up policy between different prefectures in the government. Or so you hear of things where, for example, Dunkirk was evicted. Everyone was put in a bus or several buses, driven round for eight hours and then delivered back exactly to the site where they were picked up from. Presumably somebody has been talking to somebody else mm -hmm. and that the holding centres promised weren't there. Uh, you know, you hear, I hear during Corona that people turned up, they were rounded up, taken to some hotel, two people crossed, tested positive for Corona, so then nobody was let in. So if there's a level of chaos, there's a level of unjoined up policy. I don't know if on some level there is kind of coordination and orchestration. Mm -hmm. Not, it's really hard to tell. We do know, we do know that the UK has invested at least 140 million towards the fences and contributes to the policing. So in that strategy, the UK is definitely involved in those discussions. We know that, if mm -hmm. it looks like there isn't a plan. Yeah, they're forgetting that they're playing with just, I mean, people just, I don't know, I, I find it really frustrating because when I, if I'm trying to do anything, maybe raising money for refugees and stuff, I find there's a lot of people that are quite against it. And they say, well, if you're raising money for any other project, that'd be fine, but I'm not interested in refugees. And I find that people, they don't seem to see the human aspect of it, or they can't put themselves in that, that situation. I don't know if you found the same. Mixed. I mean, I think sometimes that's there. And, uh, and on the other hand, I think people are very generous. There's, I think there's two answers to that. I think lots of politicians would say that. Mm -hmm. And they'd say, you know, look, there's no votes in this. It's a very sensitive area. I've heard people say that in response to questions. And I would argue, actually, the voluntary effort over the last four years has been funded pretty much by UK Facebook. Not, no, not all of it, but a significant amount of the UK response is, is funded by UK Facebook okay. campaign. So actually, huge amounts of service delivery, including RCK, Refugee Community Kitchen, doing between 1,200 and 2,000 meals every day for the last four years, has been funded by uh, voluntary donations. Okay, that's good. So there is a will. There is a will. You know, imagine if that was coordinated or you know, that is then they haven't got mainstream funding to do that. Mm -hmm. So that is an aspect. And then on another level, yes, you know, as people fight for their jobs and their services, they feel smaller, don't they? And they look to what is driving that and they look to blame others and i think it's difficult to imagine it's difficult to imagine all the different sort of familiar people that are there yeah. you know, and if any of us found ourselves in any of those situations we would be among the brave and intrepid and exceptional people who have done the journey well we would be some of us would be who have done that journey Mm -hmm. you know, who have crossed so far, whether you're 
a more middle class educated person in Iran or you are fleeing the Taliban in Afghanistan or you are fleeing some kind of conflict in Sudan all of us would be those people mm -hmm. and it is difficult for people to imagine that yeah. and I think it's also difficult for people to understand <coughs> the solutions that those people bring and the, the coronavirus has highlighted that again you know like who are the healthcare workers who are the doctors and nurses who are the people in the care homes they are the people that actually are pretty much a cross-section of those people now trying to get to the UK in Calais yeah those are the people but it's always hard to imagine people unless you meet them and I think yeah I feel you know often I have, I'm really overwhelmed by solutions and I don't have clear strategies I just know that having met lots of people, I'm compelled to go back and help out and witness the situation. And I sometimes think that sometimes things feel so awful, it's too hard to look. And sometimes the only way that you can look is if you're doing something little and that enables you to face it and look. and. Sometimes I feel like don't, I'm not even doing any more than that. But I'm just sticking with it to witness a bit so that when the conversation becomes clear, we were there yeah. enough to join in that conversation. Yeah. Sometimes that's the difficult thing as well, isn't it? That you, people don't know or you don't know where to start, or where to begin. And it's just doing that little thing that's that's... I don't know, that's the important thing, just doing something. <laughs> yeah. 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 And being able to say to those people, not refugees, being able to tell the stories of some of the people that are there that would be so familiar to them and, and who any, you know, nine out of those ten of those people would cross the road to help if they were standing next to them. Yeah. And so um the herbalist without borders of use uh, is it set up now as an organization in its own right we're an agency I and mean, i think it will take us so the structure is that we have an umbrella uk group where there are lots of independent chapters and people attending off and going and doing their own thing um there's a bristol group that is doing a lot of work at home, a lot of refugee support at home. Scotland, Glasgow Unity Centre does its own work. So in a way, the UK umbrella is to just to facilitate lots of independent chapters. But as individual chapters, we're the kind of Calais campaign. We've also got a medicine making campaign. We are affiliated to the international group. Um, just for, partly for sake of convenience and I think by being connected we're part of a, a bigger web. The, in terms of Herbalists Without Borders UK, the Calais campaign, we started being in Calais as an individual agency from September. We uh, 
we are growing as an organization you know we haven't got a formal structure in any incorporated way yet we don't have a membership and a voting system but we are firefighting and being there and also working on the structures as we're going along we've got we've received some funding for me to work between now and september to start setting that up but also preparing for winter and i think we just build that as we go along it's a, it's an ongoing conversation i don't think that we will have formal structures for a couple of years because we don't know what our vision is really you know it's difficult to respond to something and to set up all those organizational layers yeah. especially when you know, who are we are we an ngo are we activists are we herbalists just dipping in i think that we don't really know the answers to those questions yet and we're working them out as we're going along but we are really keen to be in calais an agency who is part of a wider ecology of provision who is answerable who and accountable that had that setting up more quality control more checks and balances in terms of our service delivery and is can be seen to be there at a certain time every month so all those things we're constantly auditing and building Great. Yeah, I think that consistency is really working for people, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Makes you more fundamental, but also makes you more known to like all the agencies that you were talking about. So they trust you a lot more. That you're not just here dipping in, then going away, and never coming back again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely key. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. That's, but that's really hard because once you commit to delivering every month, you have to be there every month. Yeah. And we're not paid. We're struggling with funding. And I felt that that was my mission last winter to be there every month to start building up the team to do that. But we still don't have a big enough team. And, and I feel like we always need to have a certain standard so now i'm making the team even smaller because i feel like we may not deliver without including somebody that's been qualified for five years we may not deliver without at least somebody who's got a frec three first aid certificate or two people uh so those are all tensions they're all tensions to be worked out but they are you know, how many building? How many go out each time? I think an ideal team is about four people, okay. and that's uh, how many people you get in Nicole's van as well. Um, but we can't always just rely on her mm -hmm. or that particular van. Um, ask me again in September when I'm hoping that you will be involved in this conversation. We are trying to create a situation where we are trying to work out what is our lowest possible you know what is the minimum that we have to have present in order to deliver it might be that we work back 
in conjunction with the fast team when they start off. So maybe we have two herbalists, a student and a nurse. Mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> as long as that ticks our boxes of, of what's our minimum delivery. Do you have a lot of students coming out with you and helping? Yes, nice. but that in itself is quite hard work. Um, you know, like every time there's an induction, but we're working on that. I think if we had a core team, then it would be easier to build up the team to always include a student, always include somebody who, you know, I think it's perfectly acceptable to only come out once because then you're able to go and do better workshops and better communicating. Yeah. But every time somebody is new, there's a load of induction and a load of things that have to happen. Yeah. So ideally, where I would like to be is that I would like to go out every three, three months. I'd like to be there for 10 days. And I would like to, there to be three or four other people who had been at least two or three times and had at least five years of clinical experience. I would like somebody like that in the team each time. I would like a logistical person that had been out lots of times. So that, you know, so we need three or four people, clinical supervisor type roles. We need three or four logistical coordinator type roles. Whether we end up having paid roles or whether we end up having um, some kind of stipendary roles, this is all to be decided. Yeah. You know, and then next week somebody's going to go. It's illegal to deliver in Calais. It's done all that work, but I'm hoping that the structures that we set up and the conversations that we have may be transposed in other scenarios other than Calais. Yeah. So hopefully, everything that we do is capacity building for all sorts of situations. And how are you able to get out? with coronavirus to get over here? Uh, we were lucky enough to have a good relationship with Auberge, one of the agencies who uh, sorted out the paperwork. Okay. So that we were working under their jurisdiction. So we did a really big delivery in April. Ironically, that was the least cough, colds and flus we've seen all winter. <laughs> I don't know what's happening there. I mean, there's a whole interesting thing. And I think we probably haven't had the capacity to do sufficient quality monitoring. But I would say we've seen between 102 and 300 people with cough, colds and flus all winter. And April was the lowest. February was the peak. My guess is that coronavirus was in Calais from December, yeah. given that two key streams of population are Iran and Italy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Lots of people are coming from Iran. Lots of the Africans come by Libya and then Italy. And are people, so coming, quite reg are people coming quite regularly still to, to Cali? Yes. Yeah. New people all the time. Okay. Do you have any... Um, any like stories from a visit with when you engaged with any of the people or that you could share? 
I know. I always feel that every visit there's somebody and it, it, it's difficult to, difficult to talk about individual stories and you get used to protecting people. Uh, there's always somebody who really gets to me every time and I'm glad of that. I would hate not to feel that. But that's always quite hard because there are always you end up having flashbacks to that person for weeks after and thinking, what are they doing tonight? Where are they? You know, last time I think Nicole found it really difficult that there was somebody who I think was a type one diabetic who was having to go and pick up his insulin from La Paz every time. You know, I've done things like taken a 14 year old boy to hospital with a broken foot and then waited for him to be discharged till two o'clock in the morning on crutches and then taken him in my van to scramble up a bank to go to the shed to the to a tent on the campsite and just left going what what am I doing here and what how is this you know I've done the same with people with flu so somebody I thought they had a bacterial chest infection gone in, taken them to A&E, and then you are spending a bit more time with somebody, you find out a bit more their story. Uh, they've had blood tests, they've had an x-ray, turns out they don't have a bacterial infection, it's just a bad viral flu. So there I am, back in my van, discharging, you know, those are always difficult. That doesn't tell enough, you know, I, there are so many individual stories. There are, you know, somebody that you meet who you'll talk to and it turns out they've lived in the UK for 18 years. Uh, they've been waiting on their visa that's just been put off for years and years. And in the end, they go back because their mum's really ill and they make the decision to go back and visit and be with family while they're dying. And then they get, and then they can't get and they've got family, they've got a business, they've got a shop, they've got jobs, their English is perfect. You know, the amount of people I say, where did you get that Brummie accent? And they'll say, <laughs> Birmingham. Or I'll say, you know, where did you get your accent? And it's wood green. You know, so there are lots of people that have lived here. There are so, there are so many different stories. You know, there is one, young man from Sudan who I know has been there several years. I really started to notice him because when you're doing first aid and you've got 30 people and it can be quite stressful and tense, you kind of know who are the community leaders who are dispersing tension, who are like bringing a bit of humour in, who have some kind of authority, who end up taking lots of medicine away with you for people at their camp that are sick who were there to translate when you really need them or if somebody's being a bit arsy they'll just nurse it in a clever reliable way and you know even when you haven't talked to them if they're there you kind of know that they are looking after you and helping you you know, this one young man that I'm thinking of, I always say, are you all right? And he goes, of course I am, don't worry about us. And he's, you know, absolutely reliable and admirable. And I've 
understood his story and he'll come in, you know, and he'll say, yeah, last night I tried to go by boat. Or the, the last week we were in a, a truck where the dogs found us. I can't, I can't communicate and I don't, you know, there are all sorts, every diversity of humanness is there, mm -hmm. but there is a disproportionate amount of extraordinariness and everything that you see in the time of crisis like we've just experienced you are going to come across there because people are in crisis so the bravery the humanity the kindness i see more often there because you're in that time of intensified crisis so the best things about humanity you know some terrible awful things but the very precious things you do see them and the humor and you know when Nicole was talked about going out this time we had to have all our visors on and I was so worried about I wasn't there I found it really difficult I was really worried about them how were we going to do with our PPE what was our protocols going to be it was suddenly much much more serious and then I got a message back from Nicole that some young lads had been like gently teasing them about the ridiculous <laughs> and I suddenly got that sense of relief that you get because that's you know you've been through all sorts of things last time you went then somebody might have been stabbed you're kind of nervous and then you turn up and some young refugee will welcome you with humor mm -hmm. and put you at your ease and it's amazing you know how it happens that way around yes yes i think what you're doing is really amazing um is there the last my last question just is there any way for just the, the people who are listening to this to contribute if they want to yes mm. Okay, um, and I think that our, going forward, I think that we have to stay engaged, we have to show solidarity. I can't tell you how important it is to be able to say somebody, somebody in Scotland made this chest drop. You know, we made this, we didn't get this from a shop. No, you know, there are people there thinking about you. And I don't, I can't speak for my government I don't know how to justify that. I'm really sorry what just happened with the police today. But not everyone's like that. So sharing the medicine Sorry, you need to cut <laughs> the tear for bits of it. But it you know, it's it's nothing and it's enormous at the same time. So Being there and knowing that we're part of like a bigger thing is, is very important. So for this winter, the thing is we need a medicine making campaign and we need, you know, we need to do that in an organised way. We need to do that with quality control. We need to be able to, you know, when, when Refugee Kitchen first started, they used to do things like you know, do school food deliveries. 
and you know somebody would go to school with their can of beans and their tin of peaches and it took a little while to realize actually this isn't what we need to do we need uh half a ton of rice or a sack of lentils you know we have to be organized and professional in our delivery so that we need to focus that solidarity and wanting to help in an organized way we need to make medicines that are consistent that have a decent quality that we can you know when i'm there and i can see somebody with a really bad chest i can give a cough syrup that as i give it i know is safe and i know is good and that i can feel proud of that i don't have to keep checking and go mm, might work but i know i, can, I know what this will do so our medicine making campaign to make medicines in a way that that is organized and consistent and has quality and looks after ourselves you know every time we learn to make those medicines we are sharing the skills we're, we're using plants from our land and sharing them around and supporting people while they're there and that is the thing above all that I would ask people to be involved in and hopefully we can get more and more herbalists who are you know not always in the position to go there and going there is just one aspect of it some of us can focus on that side other of us need to focus on all the other jobs but the medicine making campaign is key that's one aspect of it uh, the other aspect is to be involved in this wider conversation about organizing you know if you feel there are you know there are lots of roles there are finance roles there are fundraising roles there are procurement roles i don't know who we are yet i don't know what kind of organization we are but if you are interested in building at that level you would that you know we also welcome that input but above all let's think about making the medicines and that model of you know buy one make one yeah. for somebody else and if corona hasn't taught us anything it's taught us that to be safe you need to look after your neighbors <laughs>